you need citizens to be skeptical. You need citizens to hold institutions responsible. The danger is that if you sort of insist, no, nothing can change, that's when institutions become brittle and incredibly fragile. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. It hasn't exactly been a banner year for institutional trust, particularly in the United States. Whether it's people refusing to wear masks because they don't trust the CDC, or storming the Capitol because they thought the election was rigged, it's safe to say that trust in our institutions is precarious right now. But Ethan Zuckerman argues that mistrust can actually be a force for good. In his new book, Mistrust, while losing faith in institutions provides the tools to transform them, Ethan describes how movements like Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and Occupy Wall Street stem from very legitimate institutional mistrust and also offer a way to create social change while working around these very institutions. Ethan began his career in the tech sector itself, infamously inventing the pop-up ad. Perhaps as penance, he then shifted to building and understanding the empowering attributes of technology. Whereas much of the debate about the internet quite rightly focuses on harms, Ethan has spent the past 20 years championing the power of the internet to amplify new voices, create new communities, and challenge institutions in dire need of reform. So when he turned his attention to trust, something I've been thinking a lot about over the past year, I was excited to talk to him. We ended up having a wide-ranging conversation about the roots of societal mistrust, why Canadians have more faith in institutions than Americans, and how the internet has both the potential to make this problem worse and to provide some tools to fix it. Ultimately, though, I think Ethan's book and this conversation is an invitation to think critically about our institutions, which ones are worth protecting, which ones need to be reformed, and which ones need to be torn down altogether. Here is Ethan Zuckerman. I don't think people are surprised to hear that trust in institutions is low, obviously, but how bad is it from your perspective? Is this sort of a, a difference in degree or kind that we're seeing now? Yeah, it's interesting. So the reason I got involved with studying trust had to do with my students. So um, I really wrote this book while I was at MIT. I was running a lab called the Center for Civic Media. And the more that I talked with those students, the more that I realized that they had very little confidence in what you might think of as the standard model of civics. Um, this idea that, you know, we need to win elections, good people need to stand for office, and that by joining those institutions and becoming part of them, positive social change occurs. Um, my students, to a large degree, were not buying it. And the more that I looked at it, I wasn't buying it either. Um, and so I started to think about where that model came from. Um, and in many ways, I think that model came from the U.S. Civil Rights Movement and this idea that the combination of sort of legislative action, court action, and public protest 
could work together to put pressure on institutions and lead towards very substantial change. And if you work in social change in the United States, as I have for, you know, 20 years, you get really used to advocacy organizations run by lawyers that sort of make their change in the court. And I started wondering whether there was something that had changed in society between the 1960s, which is the height of the civil rights movement, and the present. And one of the things that seemed clearest to me was this catastrophic fall of confidence in institutions. Mm. So when you just look at the endpoints of it, it's easy to tell a particular story. And that story says, wow, people really had great confidence in institutions in the 1960s. You'd have four out of five Americans telling you that they trusted the government to do the right thing all or most of the time in the mid-1960s. By the mid-20-teens, you know, that number's down to one in five. So clearly, this must be a recent phenomenon. This must be the internet. It must be social media. It must be polarization. But then you look more closely, and actually, confidence in the U.S. government falls the most sharply during the 1970s. Hmm. It's a long time ago. Um, and while that confidence claws its way back at different points, um, it's really sort of about local moments in the political cycle. Um, it's confidence under Reagan. It's confidence under Clinton. It's the, the bellicosity of a nation at war after 9-11. Um, but pretty much, you know, since the 2010s, it's been very, very low down. But that, that first drop in confidence is something that, that we really have to consider. And for me, that takes us to this question of abandoning public goods, of really questioning what government is for. Now, those are diagnoses that in the book, I, I draw very specifically to the US and the UK, particularly to Reagan and Thatcherism. I, I would be interested from your perspective in Canada, whether, whether there is that same sort of neoliberal shift towards, you know, the uninvolved state. Um, you know, for us down here in the U.S., we tend to look north and, and see a much more functioning state. Um, so I'd be very curious sort of how that, how that differs between the nations. The short answer is while there has been a, one particularly notable 10-year period of conservative government that did bring in certain sort of Reaganite, Thatcherite, small government initiatives – um, trust in institutions is still very high in Canada. Yeah, um, government institutions, but perhaps more consequentially, I think media institutions. Mm, yeah, there are the trust levels in Canadian broadly defined centrist media is incredibly high. Yeah, and I actually think it plays a huge role in mitigating some of the effects of more polarized media online. Um, if everybody's still reading or consuming a more moderate evening news, it plays a huge role in, in mediating some of the more eccentricities of the online ecosystem. Right? So I, I think that's totally worth digging into. Um, I, I have the great good fortune, my department chair in the School of Public Policy over at UMass Amherst um, is a marvelous Canadian scholar, uh, Alistair Roberts. And he and I were talking about polarization 
um, at the end of the the 2020 U.S. election, right? And and so, you know, truly crazy election where you know not only did you have people going into the streets, but you had people on the right storming the U.S. Capitol, um, believing the election had been stolen. Um, it's impossible as a media scholar not to see strong media aspects to this, right? It's quite possible um, for people on the right to sort of isolate themselves in a media bubble in which the election was clearly stolen and something must be done about it. Um, Roberts pointed out that in Quebec, you know, 40 odd years back, you had a media ecosystem where you had entirely different views of the world, depending on whether you spoke English or French. And you also had uh, moments of incredible instability and, and frankly, terrorism uh, around Quebecois separatism. And as I'll put it, um, it took a lot of work to make Canadian politics as boring as it is. Mm. Uh, and I thought it was a lovely way to sort of think about it because of course, you know, that's, this is a moment where I think Americans would, would pay for boredom. Right. But I think um, the role of the CBC and the role of media that is taking public interest extremely seriously. Um, I think that can't be dismissed. But I, I think what I would say more broadly on this, Taylor, is that my diagnosis in many ways is that institutions are really vulnerable to mistrust through two routes. The first is that they can screw up and lose trust organically, right? So um, the medical system in the United States has had a, a catastrophic fall in confidence. Similarly, confidence in the church falls sharply at the time that the Boston Globe reveals um, the extent of sexual abuse within the Catholic Church. But the second way that institutions can lose confidence is if they're just systemically attacked. And what's interesting in that sort of Reagan-Thatcherite moment is that it's an attack on government itself. And so we see that under Reagan in the States. We see it again with Trump. It's a different attack, right? There, there's literally a conspiracy against him within the deep state. But Trump also goes against um, media as a whole and sort of chooses it as his enemy of choice. And that has an enormous amount to do uh, with loss of confidence in this. So, you know, if Canadians have much greater confidence in institutions, it may in part be due to those institutions simply functioning better. It may also have to do with the fact that unlike in the US, the UK, and frankly, Russia, right, which is where I think a lot of these techniques develop, there has not been the political tendency of demonizing the institution and turning it into an enemy, which seems to be an incredibly effective technique. Yeah, that really jumps out in your analysis. And I mean, it's something that's a real point of differentiation, I think, between the American media ecosystem and and certainly the Canadian one. And I I, I think about your former colleague, Okai Bentler's argument around Still, still very much my colleague, just not at the same university. Fair actually. enough, fair enough. But I mean, what struck me about his analysis of 2016 um, was that the picture that emerged of this confluence of online radicalization, normalization in mainstream media, but then 
further normalization through political speech. And it's that, and that's what catalyzed that mistrust of government. Whereas in Canada, we have the same kind of crazies online. Um, but we don't have a Fox News-like entity repeating those at night. And we don't have a political party trumpeting the same narrative on the campaign trail. And so that, that deep level of mistrust of institutions or the state, which really has to take seed, never really grabs hold. So an analysis that I, that I had the good fortune to work on, um, friends of mine in France approached me and said, look, could we repeat the Bankler team's analysis in France? We're really curious if we're facing uh, this same sort of polarization, uh, this sort of asymmetric polarization that Yochai saw where the right sort of went off the rails and, and the left remains uh, within a relatively normal distribution of opinion. So we did a ton of work. Uh, we did a very thorough Twitter analysis. We, we did lots and lots of text analysis. We did lots of, of graph theory and processing. The output of the whole thing is the same thing's not happening in France. In France, there is this tight cadre of elite media that sets the agenda for the country. They are enormously interconnected, whether they lean left or right. And the rest of the country's media is looking to them to see what the important stories are. There are lots of downsides about this. Um, that elite media can be elitist. It can be blind. But what it means is that there's no platforming of those conspiracy theory extremist views, which are just as pervasive within the French internet as they are in the, in the US internet. They just can't find a foothold. And because they can't find a foothold, there's no political motivation to adopt them either, right? That's, so that's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. So, um, if, you know, broadcast media came in with a Fox News style channel, it might radically change the equation. But at this particular point, we were able to sort of look at it and say, no, this is just unfolding very differently in France. If anything, what we want to warn is that there are probably interesting narratives coming up in these mistrustful segments of media, and they are not getting platformed, and you might be ignoring them at your own peril. You have to figure out how to pay attention to that. Um, but yeah, the U.S. situation is is really unusual, unique, and problematic. You, you asked a question at the beginning of all of this, how, how worried should we be? Yeah. I think in many ways, um, the most worrisome study that I end up discussing in the book is um, the FOA and Monk study called uh, Deconsolidation of Democracy, right? And in simple terms, it's, it's actually, it's a really simple study. It's just a reanalysis of sort of cross tabs of the World Values Survey. And it's asking people the question, do you believe that it's essential to live in a democracy? And people born in the 1930s and 40s in the US, you know, 80% say it's essential to live in a democracy. Once you get to middle-aged people like me, born in the 1970s, it's down to about 50%. When you go generations younger than mine, it can be down to 30%. And this is a fairly consistent finding across mature democracies. Part of what's fascinating about this 
is people's responses to this paper. Oh, yeah. I mean, it got a little bit of attention. It, no it got a lot of attention. Um, <laughs> but one of my favorite responses is um, from one of the scholars who's most responsible for the World Values Survey, who sort of wrote back and said, okay, there is a finding here, but it's probably mostly about the United States where this effect appears to be the most dramatic. And obviously, that's to be expected because the U.S. democracy is utterly dysfunctional at this point. Right. And yeah. it, it's sort of wonderful when you see a dispassionate methodologist sort of say, <laughs> well, of course, the U.S. is completely screwed up. You know, we're not yeah. so sure about this in Europe. But, yeah. you know, clearly there's there's some of what's going up here. Yeah. yeah. So, so what are some of the consequences of this declining trust? I mean, they make the case that it's leading to this democratic deconsolidation, and maybe that's the case in, in many respects. But you seem to paint a broader picture of the consequences of this. Um, you give that great example of the Sicilian mafia emerging. Yeah. So the emergence of private actors when no one trusts public ones may be one consequence. But could you expand a bit on what you Sure, sure. Well, I'll, I'll start with that example because I, I, I do think it's, it's interesting and illustrative. And I'll see if I can find two more examples that come out of that. Um, scholars of Sicily... Um, have a much more sophisticated understanding of the mafia than we tend to get from Hollywood movies. Yeah. And the understanding of the mafia that's advocated um, by Italian scholars who are knowledgeable about these things are that the mafia is best understood not as a criminal organization, but as a trust broker. Mm. Um, that obviously uh, there's an enormous amount of criminality that goes on but that this is how societies respond to having low interpersonal trust and low institutional trust. Mm. Um, if you have high interpersonal trust but low institutional trust, that's actually a nice example of Japan right now. Mm. Uh, low confidence in institutions, very high confidence in fellow citizens. That you can get away with. What does that lead to? What kind of social organization it, does it, that lead to? I think it leads to... Um, governments that are are not always super stable um, and governments that end up being very widely criticized but a highly functioning economy because people are able to build it on strong personal ties. Um, China, for instance, has very high institutional confidence, very, very low interpersonal confidence. That seems to lead towards uh, a very strong government. Uh, and the capability of um, kind of a, a wild west capitalism to emerge where ultimately, you know, you can rely on someone to sort things out, but it can get pretty bloody in the meantime. Um, Sicily was sort of an example of low interpersonal trust, low institutional trust through a, a lot of history coming out of it. Um, and the idea is that the mafia emerges as the fair broker. Um, you're going to stand there and make sure that the the cattle breeder and the butcher both get a fair deal and you're going to get a slice of the deal in the process. Um, and this literally seems to be the case down to control of the drug trade. Uh, Palermo is evidently legendary in drug control circles because so few people overdose um, because the purity and quality of the drug supply is so high. Because it's controlled by this uh – Honest broker. <laughs> because it's controlled by an honest broker that works very, very hard right. um, to, you know, um, to quote Warren G, to regulate, right? Um, to, to sort of maintain those illegal operations. This is not the society anyone wants, right? But it is the sort of thing that can emerge at a moment where government and other institutions 
are simply not stepping up and taking control. A parallel might be what's happening in some Brazilian favelas right now, where we are seeing armed gangs institute coronavirus lockdowns to try to deal with the spread of the disease that is going mostly unchecked in Bolsonaro's Brazil. But I'll give you a third example of this, which was very personal for me. Um, March 13 of last year, um, I had a bunch of things in New York. And for me, really, the only way to get to New York is via trains and subways. And I was really nervous about it, but I was going to do it. And then my university at that point, MIT, before I moved to UMass, my university just ordered me not to. And I found myself sort of thinking, well, thank God someone said something, right? You know, the Trump administration wasn't going to order me not to get on a train. My state government hadn't said anything about it. So finally, my employer sort of stepped up and said, look, as an institution, we're going to make a decision that you need the lockdown. And it's one of those reminders that institutions can be really helpful. Sometimes it is really helpful to have a bureaucracy sort through a very complex fact pattern and sort of make the the go no go decision. I actually think moments of crisis, you know, like the coronavirus are are increasing our understanding and our need for um institutions and institutional voice. Yeah, and and certainly this last year has been just a a petri dish for various test cases and trusts and institutions and vaccines and the pharma industry and each other. I mean, trust has been at the center of a lot of this. And one of the things you see in in Canada is the left and the right responding to that in quite different ways. Um, yes, there's been a de- slight decline in trust in government in handling this. Um, and the right sees this as their sort of overbearingness. But actually, the majority of people want the government to do more. So a lack of trust isn't actually that they think they're doing them too much. It's that that they need them in this time. They're not doing enough. So, And you talk a lot about how the left and right interpret trust and react to mistrust differently. It, it seems in some ways the right takes advantage of it politically and to mobilize in a more powerful and effective way than the left, which sometimes disengages when they don't trust this process. Um, how do you how do you view that the ideological nature of mistrust? I guess. So, I need to be sort of careful as I talk about this, right? Because um, I do believe it is possible to be politically conservative without supporting many of the things that have become associated with conservatism in the United States. It's not a healthy moment for a movement that may have legitimacy, but is really not showing it at this point. Um, Mistrust has at least two things that it can do. One thing mistrust is very, very good at doing is getting people to disengage. Mm -hmm. If you feel like you have no control over a political situation, if you feel like you have no way of making your voice heard, if everything is a fait accompli, then you step back. You stop playing the game. The other thing that mistrust seems to do, and this is fascinating, is that mistrust sort of reads as a choppy sea. It reads as a complicated scenario that no one knows how to find their way through. 
And then whoever it is who manages to thrive in that scenario, that person is destined to lead, right? So the theory there is why does Vladimir Putin engage in not so much propaganda, but in sort of a generalized increase in mistrust? Why is it the philosophy of a great deal of Russian media to promote conspiracy theories, to promote um, non-rational thinking. The theory behind it is that it's confusing, it's chaotic, but one thing that is deeply apparent to everyone is that Putin is very much in charge. And the same sort of playbook is, is something that in many ways you could sort of see with Trump. You know, Trump ends up saying, look, it's all conspiracies. Everyone's got their own agenda. There's a deep state that's working against me. Um, but look at me. I'm a self-made billionaire. I know how to rise above all of this and, um, I can make this all work. The problem with that, of course, is that once you lose, uh, and lose as soundly as he did, that sort of notion of invulnerability is is punctured and and my sense is that um that trump can't pull that trick off again what worries me is that it's now a playbook for someone else to to take forward and i think as long as we have this incredible high level of of mistrust and and perhaps disengagement that it could easily work again i mean so in, in some sense, Democrat, or mistrust can be a democratic good if it mobilizes groups to push for change, and then you have a government that is responsive to that change. I mean, thinking 2008 financial crisis, that led to a huge amount of distrust, but there was probably a, a lot of people wouldn't think enough, but there was kind of a responsive government that came in and some change emerged. And so that's a democratic good form of mistrust. And then Two years later, you have four years later, you have a slightly more significant level of distrust leading to a leader with autocratic tendencies. I mean, it's a delicate knife edge. It, it can absolutely cut both ways. You need citizens to be skeptical. You need citizens to hold institutions responsible. Institutions naturally protect themselves. And if you don't engage in surveillance, if you don't engage in counter-democracy, those institutions more often than not will find a way to go off the rails. The danger is that if you don't accept this dynamic that institutions are going to be subject to mistrust, that people are going to try to reform them, and you sort of insist, no, nothing can change, um, that's when institutions become brittle and incredibly fragile. I wonder if that counter-democracy principles or open democracy, I've just finished reading Helen Landamore's book on open democracy mm. and deliberative democracy processes. And I, I can hear her responding that, okay, counter-democratic movements, yes, are, are a response to mistrust in traditional institutions or seeking reform. Um, but actually, um, don't go far enough in reforming the institutions themselves. So a more sort of radical institutional reform agenda that de the deliberative democracy community would call for. That actu actually you need to rebuild these institutions, not abandon them and just push from them from the outside. 
So I wonder if there's like a, is there a radical version of institutionalized reform as opposed to external reform? Sure, sure. Well, there's, I think there's two pathways there. I mean, so the, the first is that I actually talk about radical institutionalism as sort of one of my pathways towards productive insurrectionism. Um, so contra-democracy, right? This, this sort of mistrustful, let's hold people responsible, um, let's keep institutions honest. That, that's one version of it. A, a second version is knocking institutions down and building new ones in their place. A, a third one is kind of using energy from the inside to pull institutions back to their original goals. So the example that I often give of that in the United States is what people are calling the progressive DA's movement. So in, uh, in the United States, the district attorney's office has an enormous amount of power, uh, within criminal prosecution. Not only, um, do they make the case, uh, against a defendant, but they can sort of determine whether to bring a case in the first place. They, they can divert people into training programs or substance abuse programs. The vast majority of the time, what they do is they try to imprison people. So there is now a movement from district attorneys to sort of use the full t- toolkit to basically say, we don't want to imprison everybody. Um, we actually want to deal with community justice or we want to deal with restitution or we want to deal with getting people into treatment. So that notion of radical institutionalism, I, I think that's absolutely possible. I think it's absolutely worthwhile. I guess what I would say is, much as I love my deliberative folks, I don't know that everyone is committed to deliberation under the right and the fair circumstances. And deliberation can be a great deal of time um, token inclusion. Um, I am in many ways much more excited about conversations like defund the police. If you're dealing with a state like Minnesota, where there are decades of mistrust between law enforcement and the community, it's not going to be enough to make small changes to that system. You have generations of people of color who have every good reason to mistrust that institution. And unless that institution is dismantled and rebuilt into something different, and unless those communities are involved with the reconstruction of the system, that institution is bound to be mistrusted. So part of the argument of my book is that you have to kind of make up your mind. Um, Is an institution capable of being reformed through counter-democratic pressure? Is it capable of being drawn back to its values by radical institutionalists? Or does it really need to be torn down and rebuilt? And and that's hard when the state is not one institution and democracy is not one institution. It's many. So the Trump narrative resonates because it puts everything in one bucket and says, tear it all down. But the institutional reform formists <laughs> may have to pick and choose which ones can be reformed, which one should be, which one needs to be dismantled, right? And it's far more nuanced. We got an incredible lesson in tear it all down from the Arab Spring, right? Mm. So we watch this wave of democratization sweep across North Africa and the Middle East. In one country, it goes well. 
in Indonesia, we end up with something resembling a functioning democracy. Uh, in Libya, in Syria, it turns into civil war. In Egypt, where people are most passionate about it, what happens is what normally happens when you tear down institutions, which is that the next most powerful institution picks up. So you topple Mubarak, what do you get? You get the Muslim Brotherhood. You topple the Brotherhood, what do you get? You get the army. That That's the order of power in Egypt at that particular moment. And you knock one brick off the top of the stack, and then the next one is the one that's up there. So tearing it all down, as wonderful as it sounds, just doesn't work very well. Yeah, Picking something that is at a point where it simply cannot regain the trust and thinking about how you dismantle it and rebuild it simultaneously. I think that's absolutely worth doing. I of course know your work best for thinking being one of the sort of most profound thinkers about our digital ecosystem and the way technologies can be built in service of democratic ideals or against. And it struck me in the book that of, of the examples that frankly seemed least hopeful, <laughs> many of those stem from the technology sector. BitNation, Peter Thiel's various extravagancies around floating cities and colonizing space, um, and even some of the more successful, in quote, decentralized networks like Mastodon, really not taking hold in any meaningful way. So I'm curious how you, being so immersed in that conversation about digital technologies, were you disappointed to see there not being more there? Or how do you explain that there isn't more democratic innovation maybe coming from the tech sector? Yeah, that was a fun chapter to write. Um, I, I, I... <sighs> No one likes how they get reviewed, but I, I thought the funniest thing about some of the reviews of my book were that people thought that I was being overly optimistic about projects like <laughs> BitNation, um, where I, I, I thought I was literally ridiculing it. Um, but uh, I, I guess if you simply decide to write about something that is uh, that, that is giving it a certain amount of attention, you platformed BitNation. Is what I, I, I <laughs> evidently, and and and, per, and perhaps I should not have. Um, Look, I, I think there is a narrative going on right now that suggests that um, all of our problems can be technologically solved. Um, this is the sort of uberization of everything. If we just make markets more efficient, um, you know, they'll take care of everything, including perhaps, you know, the problem of statelessness. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, no, right? Um, it, it's it's pretty obvious that that some of the ways in which people are trying to dismiss systems are are not taking seriously people's obligations to one another. Um, and I end up talking a lot about these sort of questions of exit and voice. This notion that um, when you think about exiting a political system there really is no exit possible, you know, with the exception of Peter Till moving to Mars, um, the vast majority of us are going to have to live in a nation and therefore our ability to have a voice and to talk about that nation is going to be critically important. Um, 
The truth is, I, I think things like Mastodon specifically are, are going to end up sort of following a hype cycle. I wrote a bunch of pieces dismissing Mastodon and essentially saying, you know, it's only growing with deplatform communities. It's growing with um, people who've been thrown off of everything else. Um, I, I am now actively developing Mastodon. Uh, really? My, my okay. new lab at UMass is yeah. trying to create small social networks um, that give people more control and the ability to sort of vote and um, govern their own spaces and to deal with moderation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frankly, Mastodon is is just orders of magnitude more advanced than anything else out there. And and right. so as a platform on which to build as a platform on which to build, I, I actually yeah. don't think it's a great way to replace Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, but why not? Why not? Too decentralized? Maybe I want to take that back. I think Mastodon's real charm is not as a replacement for Twitter, whether or not it could do that, but as a social network that could make it possible for anyone to run a social network. So right now we think of social networks as things that involve 2 billion people, cost billions of dollars to run, are functionally nation states in their level of complexity and the answer is a social network might work really well with between 30 and 300 people maybe 30 and 3000 people the ways that i'm experimenting with social networks right now are things like town meetings in massachusetts um, where a few thousand residents of a town might use a closed social media space to interact with their neighbors around the town budget without anything else being involved with it with heavy moderation. Wow. It turns out that Mastodon's phenomenally good for those things. And so I, I think in many cases, what we actually have to do is envision much broader uses of things that, than we generally do. Um, that the answer to, hey, Facebook sucks, it's a lousy institution, may not be that we need to fix Facebook. It may be that we actually have to fix social networks much more broadly. Yeah. And even broader than social networks, we might need to fix, as you've argued, our broader civic media infrastructure. Um, so how does this how does this evolution of social fit in with this broader rethinking of what civic media is? So one of the things that I that I try really hard to do with my own writing is um, I try to follow my own advice. And, and so the, the end of this new book, Mistrust, basically ends up saying, look, you don't have to do everything. You don't have to solve all the problems. But this would be a really great time to find an institution that you are worried about and where you have the ability to try to fix things. And for me, that institution that I'm going to try first is social media. I think there's a ton that's wrong with social media at the moment. So that's now where I'm sort of focusing my efforts. There are other systems that clearly need to be part of this equation. Um, we referenced earlier in this conversation CBC and sort of providing an anchor for Canadian media so the Canadian media doesn't go completely crazy. Um, I think the American model of all your quality journalism is going to be paid for by the market is crazy. Um, I think it's lovely that it worked for, you know, 60 or 70 years, but it doesn't work now. 
And clearly it is possible to have taxpayer sponsored media and, um, you know, have it be responsible and centrist and independent. And I don't know that there's a way through what we're facing in the United States without taking that seriously. The flip side is that can't be my main problem right now. Um, I've got to work on this one thing that I can work on. And, and right now that's going to be the future of social media. Um, in the, you know, if I'm somehow incredibly successful at that, I might go a step further and try to work on things like, um, decentralized search or, uh, responsible non-surveillance ad networks. I think that would actually be a really terrific problem to work on. As pieces of this new infrastructure. That's the spirit of, of digital yeah. public infrastructure. The spirit of digital yeah. public infrastructure is first and foremost, the internet is too important to leave up to the private market. Um, that the private market is obviously going to have a, a place in it, but you can't assume that the market meets all of your needs. Um, this whole argument about media is that argument, right? So maybe that's the case for social media. Maybe that's the case for search. Search mm. strikes me as an incredibly powerful and potentially dangerous thing to leave purely up to the market. Maybe that's a place um, where we need sort of a public alternative. So what are the parts of digital infrastructure where we need to explore public alternatives and, and how do we explore funding for it? That That's really the question that I'm trying to ask. Yeah, and this, just to wrap things up, I mean, this this idea of the market um, absolutism of American media, I mean, it's something that our mutual friend Emily Bell drives her crazy. Um, and I think she's right. I mean, and us looking from the outside into the United States and seeing this sort of market fundamentalism almost around journalism just seems somewhat um, bizarre. But she also makes an argument on trust that I'd like to get your thoughts on yeah. in closing and journalism, which is that is trust really the right metric for something like an institution of journalism where when half of Americans trust Fox News or yeah, more than half of Americans trust Trump? Or, so what's your sort of defense of trust as, the, as a lens for looking at democratic institutions? Well, so, so let me actually sort of be clear on this, right? When, when I wrote a book on mistrust, I think everyone concluded that, you know, they should come to me and ask me how to increase trust in things. And what I've had to say to people is, no, that actually wasn't my point in writing this book. Um, I think in many cases, you know, distrust, mistrust is, is a perfectly reasonable thing to have. Um, I think ideally, uh, we would want to be in a place where we understood enough about where media was coming from that we could read it through that lens. And I think for sophisticated readers, U.S. media actually works pretty well that way. Uh, if Fox News is telling me something, I understand a little bit about the agenda behind it. Um, I understand something ab about, frankly, the more subtle agendas behind something like the New York Times. Um, it would be really nice to have something where there were a strong process behind it, pushing it towards neutrality. Um, but I don't know that neutrality and trust are necessarily equivalent. I think trust has come into play so much on media 
because it's been under such attack. I think that this idea that left-wing media or mainstream media as left-wing media is advancing an agenda has become such a, a, a popular right-wing talking point that, you know, it sort of obscures what some of these biases actually are. I think the truth is that media of all sorts has all sorts of biases. They tend to be biases towards sensationalism. They tend to be biases towards celebrity. They tend to be sort of massive structural biases about who gets to make news and who doesn't get to make news. And I, I think we don't talk nearly as often about those. But I, I think if there's any way in which my current work connects to these questions about the future of media – it's really around this idea that um, we just need a much larger solution set. One of the reasons the U.S. is in such trouble right now is that we have limited our possible solutions to a big established company will fix it or a new startup company will fix it. And actually, we really need small groups of people will fix it. Uh, NGOs will fix it. Local governments might fix it. State or federal governments might fix it. But we have taken so much of that off the table in the United States that we have solutions that feel intractable in part because we've limited our solution space well beyond what's reasonable to do. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're working on a broader solution set. And uh, thanks for this conversation. That was really special. Yeah. It's always great to talk with you. And, uh, and, and I'm really glad we could have some time together. And, and thank you so much for, for engaging with the book. And, uh, and thank you for bringing uh, some Canadian perspective on this. I'm, I'm really grateful uh, to get the view from, uh, from what it looks like across the parallel. That was my conversation with Ethan Zuckerman. As always, I'd love to hear from you. Send me your thoughts on this interview or suggestions for future episodes to taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and produced by Antica Productions. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week. <laughs>